Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and you've chosen to listen to the podcast where I ask my guests to tell me the five things from their life they'd like to put in a time capsule. So, thank you. They choose four things they cherish, but also have to reveal one thing from their past that they would like to forget. Something they want to bury in the ground and never have to think of again. My guest in this episode is the retired jump jockey, retired presenter, and as yet unretired author of seven racing novels and five non-fiction books, Richard Pittman. In his time as a jump jockey, Richard won the Whitbread Gold Cup, the Hennessy Gold Cup, the King George VI Chase, twice, and the champion hurdle. He also famously came second in the Grand National to Red Rum on the horse Crisp, one of the most thrilling and best-remembered Grand Nationals of all time, to Richard's annoyance. After his retirement from racing, he presented the horse racing programmes for BBC TV for many years and was always one of their most popular presenters because of his innate ability to talk interestingly and amusingly on anything to do with the racing game. As you'll discover now, as he tells me about his fascinating and fairly amazing life, here is Richard Pittman's time capsule. So anyway, I've been doing this for a while and you are absolutely my very first person from the racing world. So I'm quite excited because the thing I think is extraordinary is that I know nothing about horse racing, but I absolutely know all about you. How is that? That is good. There might be a few guilty secrets you don't know about, but I doubt I'll tell you about them. (laughs) But, you know, the the old racing game is a very close-knit family like other walks of life. And we're a little pond and we swim around in our own pond. And happily, since failing all my nine O-levels in 1960, mm-hmm. um, I've been swimming in that pond in various guises. So it's it's been great for me. How did you get into it then? How did you become? I mean, it's very easy to say, oh, yeah, I was champion jockey. But how do you do that? Do you just start working at a stable? 
Well, in actual fact, I did, but purely because uh, I failed my nine O levels. And Mike, in the year before in the mocks, I had been no worse than third in any of the subjects. And in those days, your results came in a slip of paper with passed or failed. I didn't know that. And there were all these Fs, which being a cocky little so-and-so, I thought meant fantastic. (laughs) No, it meant failed. But my father said to me, look, quite honestly, I don't want to support you for another year. And then you go and fail them all again. Go out and get a job. I was small. I could ride. So I went into stables. What does an uneducated little chap do? Mm. And it's a great life when you're young, uh, but you go in as a stable lad and you have to earn your spurs. You have to prove not just you can ride, they can all ride, but that you've got something about you and you build on that. I had the idea that if I went to a small stable, I'd get more chance of a ride. But yes, you do, but you get put on something that's blind in one eye and got three bad legs, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And the moment that they have a good horse, they put a jockey on it, proper jockey. So after four years of doing this at various small stables around the Cheltenham area, it occurred to me that perhaps I was pursuing the wrong way. And so therefore, you must go to somewhere who will have winners. And so the bread off the crumbs off the table will be enough to feed you on. Mm -hmm. And it proved right. And I, I looked at every big trainer and saw that they had a jockey, a second jockey, an amateur, a girlfriend, and God knows what else, you know. And I thought, it's a long waiting list. So I opted to go with the champion jockey at the time, Fred Winter, who was a great man. He'd won two grand nationals as a jockey. He was going to retire because he was older than many jockeys, jump jockeys retired in those days. Mm. It was a bit like footballers, really. You know, at 30, you're as good as you're going to get. And 35, if you managed that long, it was time to go. But now that's changed. I mean, jump jockeys go on to 40, 42. On the flat, they go to 50 now. Mm. Things have changed. And the jumping game, you see, has changed because... Thank you, darling. Sorry. That's all right. Uh, my wife's brought me a cup of tea. I'm the nice. tea lady. Hello. Perfect. I'll have no sugar. Thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, Mike, no, everything's changed because better jockeys have a driver. They have a nutritionist. They have a psychotherapist. They go to the gym or have a personal trainer. Mm -hmm. They have an agent. There's racing now every Sunday. So we used to have two months off in the summer. Now they just carry it straight on. It finishes on the last day of April and starts the 1st of May. You know, it's, it's, it's an ongoing circus. So when you started, you were driving yourself about, were you? I was in a mini that I had to bump start in order to get it going. You know, so, <laughs> you know it was difficult. It was difficult. Yeah. Or would even go in the back of the horse box when the horses were going, you know, initially. But teeing up with Fred Winter was my opening. And it was obvious that he would have a lot of youngsters wanting to go with him because of my very same reasons. And uh, I happened to be the first one of his youngsters because he started the first week with six horses. That soon escalated to 26 to 52. But for the first few weeks, there were just six. Hmm. And I was the first lad there. He sent me a a lovely note, a bit like the old Eton or Harrow or Cambridge or Oxford. Dear Pittman, no, we're jockeys together. <laughs> Dear Pittman, I'd like you to make a sale of available from 
June the 1st, if you don't mind. Sadly, I have no accommodation at the moment, but I have a very good tennis hut and it is the summer and I think you'll be very comfortable in it until we can get something sorted. <laughs> it was lovely, lovely. And he was my hero, you see. There's my hero. I'd have slept on the grass if he'd asked me to. It's a tough game, though, isn't it? I mean, what on earth? I mean, I can imagine getting on a horse and going, yeah, I'm going to ride this thing and go as fast as I can. But then to say, I'm going to jump these great big fences. And in those days, they were huge, weren't they? They were. But it's not quite as simple as that. I know a lot of people think jockeys have no brains, but tactics <laughs> come into it a lot. Mm-hmm. Also, knowing your horse, is it just stamina laden? So therefore, you want to make that the asset by pushing everyone hard or pushing yourself hard. It may not want to be in front. They're, not, they're like kids, retrousant kids, if that's the right word. You know, some don't like to hit the front too soon. No. Otherwise, they pull up. They think they've done enough. Others need to kick on from some way out and stretch their opponents. Some, and they're not that many, are windy at a jump at a steeplechase fence. And in the National, I rode a horse years ago named after the Liverpool train station, Lime Street. Mm-hmm. And it had won six, and it was second favourite for the National. And on the way to the start, it refused to cross the Melling Road, which is a, a normal road covered in cinders for the race, you see. Yeah. And it saw the road going to the first fence. It put the brakes on and refused to cross wow. the road. So it did occur to me, Mike, I'm not going to have a very good time here at Beecher's Brook, the canal turn and the chair. <laughs> but we were aware of the cameras on us, you see. So I pulled its ear gently and said, are you listening to me? You know, we're going to have a bit of a tussle here. And I took it back. And the thing to do with a horse that is like that and has got 30 jumps and 40 horses in the race Mm. is to shove its head so far up another horse's backside (laughs) that it can't see what it's going to jump. (laughs) The thing was to not let him see what was happening. Mm. Anyway, that worked quite well until we got to the third, which is an open ditch. I mean, big ditch in front of the fence and the fence is high. It's five foot three. And um, I had to sit down and really ride him into it because he could see it now because by the third, they found out a little bit. And he thought, oh, my God, here's an open ditch, you know, and he was trying to put the brakes on. And in the end, he just fell on it and over it, and I plopped off. (laughs) And I was lying on the ground behind the fence, and they're thundering through. You know, it's noisy. The horses hitting the fence are exhaling, jockeys shouting, them landing. You know, it's a noisy place to be. And, you know, it occurred to me, you want to get out of here, but if you get up and run, you're going to be mown down. So I tucked myself in behind the back of the fence and crawled on hands and knees out into the safety under the rail to the old motor racing circuit and still on hands and knees, looked right and left. And there was my stable mate riding another of the stable's horses, a young John Frankham, who was 17 at the time, crawling from the open ditch side of the fence. <laughs> He'd been tracking me, thinking I knew what I was doing, you see. <laughs> and when my horse put the brakes on, he ran right up my backside. He went into the ditch. I landed on top of the fence. Bingo. I mean, the trainer must have been absolutely mad. Two runners, both fancied, gone by the third fence. Terrible. Well, uh, this podcast, the idea is that we talk about five things. You choose five things from your life that you'd 
preserve in a time capsule. Four of them are things that you cherish, mm-hmm. and one is one that you sort of think, well, I wish I could get rid of that. I wish I could forget it. Well, we've just been through one we like to forget, but there are yeah. many similar situations. Mm. Um, while we're on the Grand National, and this is something I'd like to forget, I was riding a horse that had been bought specifically for the race, but only shortly before, so for a lot of money. And uh, it had won again a sequence of races, but all around the north of England, small tracks, Catterick and places, little small tracks. And again, it was very, very fancy. And the BBC decided to do, on the day of the race, uh, and they recorded before, five jockeys around my dinner table at home with Julian Wilson running the show. He he was for 32 years the presenter and interviewer. Mm. So we're talking about what we're riding and, and how we fancied it. I, I really fancied mine. And one of the jockeys came from the north, Martin Blackshaw, and he said, you won't get round. Not even one circuit. You won't get round. So immediately, Julian Wilson, who was also a gambler, said, well, I'll give you three to one. You can't get a circuit, you see. So I had 100 quid on it. And this is <laughs> 1974, I suppose. Yeah, um, big money. Yeah. So I had a hundred quid on with him at three to one that I would get one circuit. And then the jockey who said, you won't get round said, well, I'll do, I'll do the same. So I had a hundred quid with him. So I've got 200 quid that I won't get one circuit. So of course I hunted him round, you know, come here, come here, come, don't go brave. Don't go for medals because they say bravery is what he hadn't got. Mm-hmm. So we got to the 16th jump, having just jumped the big chair and, and they're happy to get over that. The water jump's easy peasy. It's low and long and water on the far side. So if I jump the water, I'm on for 600 quid, you see. (laughs) So as it landed, I've turned wave to the grandstand, you see. (laughs) And nobody bar Julian Wilson knew what I was doing. They must have thought, what's a stupid boy at, you know. (laughs) But I was at 600 quid. Thank you very much. It got to the 27th fence of 30 was another big open ditch. And by then, the freshness had gone out of him, you know, and he saw the ditch and his heart fell out and he refused. But I trotted back home and uh, collected 600 quid. So it is something I want to erase, really, because it it wasn't a very good experience. But, Mike, while I'm on that, a similar one, when I retired, I did lots of stunts for the BBC because I was still fit and could ride Mm -hmm. for the Grand National. And one of them was riding round, mic'd up, and followed by a camera car, you see, two of us. So Lord Oaksey and I went round. I'm mic'd up, and so is he. And at the start, he said, oh, Richard, um, we won't jump the third. I said, of course we will. We, we, you know, they're filming us. Of course we will. <laughs> he said, no, no, no. He said, two horses, cold blood, they'll hate it. They'll stop. They'll refuse. I said, well, I'm going to jump it. He said, no, no, you can't do that. I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll gallop down to the fence and pull them up sharply, just pull the open ditch, you see. And then we'll walk round the other side and back them up to the fence, <laughs> kick them in their belly, and with some good editing, no one will ever know. <laughs> so that was fine. And we went, we did the rest of it. We're telling each other how good we are over beaches, how we cut the corner canal turn, if only jockeys could do this in the race, et cetera, et cetera. And we finished up the running and it, oh, it was marvellous. So the next year, they wanted someone else, and I went with Princess Anne's first husband, Mark Phillips, and he rode one of the Queen's three-day eventers, so entry to a three-day eventers. Easy peasy, especially on the two of you, you see. So at the start, I said to him, oh, Mark, uh, we won't jump the third. But 
wink, Will. What's up with you, jockeys, lily-livered little rots of the litter, you know? So I explained about Oaksy. And he said, well, I'm jumping it. Come with me or don't. So we, anyway, went galloping. I said, of course I will. Went galloping down to it. And remember, BBC wouldn't pay any money for a horse, had to borrow one. And I'd forgotten that it had run in the race, the National, the year before, ridden by one of the early female jockeys, hmm. Charlotte Brew. And it had refused at the third from home. And we went down to the third and it saw the open ditch coming up and it's saying, I'm not going to jump this. So I, <laughs> knowing it's televised, I've sat down and kicked it. You know, and it went in like a big wet fish. <laughs> and I fell off the other side, but I was winded. So I'm lying on the ground. I couldn't breathe. Couldn't, you can't move. You hurt. And Lord Oaksy was covering for the Daily Telegraph. And he came over and kicked me over. And he said, <laughs> well, Pittman, uh, you're a year older, but you're no wiser, are you? <laughs> so these sort of things at that third fence in the National still stick very, very strongly in my mind. So I'm sorry, that's something I'd like to change. Absolutely. The ease with which you say, and I fell off, and then I was a little bit winded. I mean, I've seen those horses. And I've seen the speed they go and the size of them, Richard. They're huge. And to be going at, what, 25, 30 miles an hour? No, oh, 25, you'd be going all week to win the National 25. No, a jumper can do 30 miles well on the bridle. Wow. You could do 35 miles an hour on better ground. Mm -hmm. And one horse I rode called Pendle, a really good little horse. Pendle. Even I remember Pendle. Yeah. Well, he was a good horse. And we were clocked going 42 miles an hour winning the Welsh champion chase or something between the third last and second last. When wow. I left the others and said, right, let's go, mm. he was clocked doing 42 miles an hour. Now, old jumpers can do that, but not for the three miles or two miles of a race. You know? No. So they're not slugs by any means. What an extraordinary feeling that must be, because you don't know necessarily that the horse has got it in him or her. No, it's not quite true, because I knew that horse. I rode him work at home. I knew how fast he was. Right. We also had won all the two-mile top races, beating the best two-milers. No, he was a good horse. And because... You know, when they're so full of it, they're pulling at the bit. Right. See, they're pulling your arms out and they want to go. That's what they're bred to do. Yeah. So when I just let the handbrake off and said, oh, look, okay, come on. Wow. That's, oh, he was in heaven. Loved oh, it. Oh, that's amazing. I won a couple of times on him. George six. We won it twice and very easily. But he was a funny little horse. Like I was telling you, they're like kids. They've got their own mannerisms. Mm. And he was so superior. But he'd pull up when he was in front. And he was so good, he used to leave his rival strength. But I could feel him coming back underneath me. But I didn't want to show the world that this horse who is cruising up in the big Christmas race was actually wanting to slow down. So you sort of keep hold of their head and slap them down the shoulder, kick them in the ribs gently, you know, just say, come on, keep doing it. So he won them both to King George's very easily. And then the third one... An Irish horse came over called Captain Christie, who wasn't a particularly great jumper, whereas my horse was superb, could come up airborne anywhere you liked and get as far the other side without any effort. It was just in him. It was such a thrill. Mm -hmm. But Captain Christie was known to have flaws in his jumping in those days. So at the start, we're walking around, everyone's saying, what are you doing? Where are you going to lead? You're going to... And I said, um, well, I don't think I'll lead for a bit. I'm not going to take Captain Christie on. 
So I hooked back at the start and let him go because mm. my horse was so good. I thought if he makes a mistake and mine flies a fence, I'm going to be in front far too soon. So I let him go 10 lengths. I never saw him again, and I was beaten <laughs> 10 lengths. <laughs> he flew around, he jumped like a stag, and I was beaten by the distance I gave away at the start. The thing I admire about jump jockeys particularly is you end up as champion jockey at the end of the season, but in that time, most of the races you ride in, you lose. I can't think of any other sport where you lose as often and end up the winner. Yeah, you, you lose more than... Well, in my day, if you could ride one in 10 rides a winner, you were doing all right. These yeah. days, with selective and agents and things, that would be a better percentage for them. Mm. But also the falls, Mike, they were roughly the same. The falls were roughly the same as winners. I was getting 800 rides for the last few seasons, so I'd get 80 falls. Wow. And you learn to do it in slow motion. Now, I was getting, besides getting winded, little fat jockey instead of a little thin jockey, and I was getting winded a lot, but also concussion. And I was called up to the jockey club to discuss this, and they said, look, if this continues, we won't relicense you. And in those days, Mike, it was just as little cork helmets with no chin straps were what you had. Yeah. And so if a horse hit a fence hard and you're going out, your helmet will go out in front of you. Oh, God. <laughs> so then they, they brought in helmets, I don't know, 1964 or something like that, with chin straps. Mm. So what a step forward that was. Yes, quite. And it was another 10 years before upper body protectors came, little light body. You know, so we broke collarbones, we hit the ground, we broke collarbones. Mm. But the thing was, when I was aware of not getting concussion, and remember, these falls happened so quickly. The time between hitting the fence and hitting the ground was time for your brain to say, roll up in a little ball and protect your head, which was great. What happens? Yes, your head's okay, but you break a collarbone or dislocate a shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> but at least they won't stop you riding for that. Oh, my word. And, of course, the rails were either metal or wooden, weren't they? Oh, they were concrete with huge wooden rails on them. You hit one of those. You were, In fact, I was left at Chepstow one time before we had cameras everywhere, you know. On the bottom bend, the furthest away from the stands, my horse slipped up on the flat going round the bend, and I rolled over and whacked my head on the concrete post, mm. and it knocked me out, you see. So I'm lying in the long grass and everyone's sort of getting ready to go home. I suppose someone said, has anyone seen Pittman? Oh, no. No, no, haven't seen him. So they went around the course and there I was, spark out, you know, in the grass. <laughs> Good Because Lord. of hitting the concrete post. Now with the plastic ones, it's such a step forward because they will snap and break. Yeah. And the head is so important to look after, you know. that At the time, you don't think of the future. You don't care about the future. But, of course, there is a lot of future. I gave up at 32. Mm. So you've only got half your working life doing what you're doing. Quite. It's an mm. incredibly gruelling life. But at the same time, you've got to keep your weight down. Yeah. And that was the killer. And I am a chubby little chap and my big thighs. You know, now we could waste every day, saunas, whatever, not eat. But you still had occasionally to take off a few pounds very quickly. Mm. And in those days, you could take a diuretic, which is banned and has been for decades, called Lasix. And we actually give them to horses that bleed, that break blood vessels, and it mm. thins the blood. But you can't race them under that. But in our days, you know, you can willy-nilly have what you like. So losing a lot of weight 
driving up to Nottingham or down to Newton Abbott near Torquay and, mm. and riding in six races, having ridden four horses out on the gallops early in the morning, getting two falls and a roasting from the trainer, you know, and coming back and not being able to eat because you were having to do light again the next day. Yes, that became hard. And the jockeys who didn't have to waste were so advantaged. Um, in my era, John Joe O'Neill never had to miss a meal. And <laughs> Dickie Johnson, who retired a year ago, four times champion, 16 times runner-up to McCoy, he never had to miss. That is a huge plus. Yes. And in the end, you get fed up of breaking bones and being hungry. Yeah, no, I can understand. So it becomes obvious to you, does it? Oh, yeah, yeah. I had a couple more years in me. I, I went at 32, but there were two or three factors. John Frankham, who went on to be multiple times champion jockey, mm -hmm. came to the yard at 16 straight from school. He'd been a British gold medal winner in the junior show jumping team. And he joined us. He didn't know anything about racing. And he was a chubby little fellow with a round face. He came to Fred Winter for an interview. And Fred Winter said, look, John, I'm looking at your hands and your feet. Your little chubby face. He said, weight is going to be a big problem to you. You know, I, I, I don't think you should even attempt it. And then he paused. He said, what's the lightest you've ever been, John? Oh, seven pounds, three ounces, he said. <laughs> so Fred Winter said to him, we don't want any funny effers here. We got enough already, he said, <laughs> but I like your spirit. You can join. Oh, brilliant. And Franken was so good that he immediately worked on his weight, you know. I think of him as being a slight man. He is now, and he was then, but, you know, he had to make himself do it. Mm -hmm. And he's fitness fanatic now. He, I was best man at his wedding. He was best man at mine. And we've been buddies for a long, long time. He's so determined. And the camaraderie between jockeys is a great thing. He never forgot that in those early days, you know, I was seeing a jockey, I was getting plenty of rides, offered three in a race. I would stick him in for one, got, got him going. Mm. But even at 16, he was, you know, he, he didn't drive, so I drove him everywhere. And we stopped coming home from Nottingham or somewhere like that. I had to get some shopping, and he's gone in the shop, browsed around. And it was in the days of security cameras outside, but they were great big objects with a flashing red light, you know. And we'd just gone out of the door, and there's John with an armful of women's underwear. <laughs> and I said, John, what have you bought all the underwear for? He said, oh, I haven't bought it. He said, I've just stolen it. Here. <laughs> so there I am holding bras and knickers and there's some on the floor and I've had to pick them up because he's legged it to the car and I've had to walk back in and go up to the counter and say I'm sorry but my friend was playing a joke on me he was great to be with and this is just an example of the camaraderie in the weighing room because mm. it was a sanctuary where nobody could the trainer couldn't get in there it was a jockey sanctuary, just the valets in there and yourselves. Yeah. And they always play pranks on you. You know, you, the bell goes to go out, you're late and you've rushed to put your helmet on, you do that, and it's got tomatoes in it. So the tomato, <laughs> you pull it out and they're streaming down your face, you know. I mean, silly little things. Yeah. You know, you're men, but you're boys. Of course, you start very young. Right, that's the end of the first circuit here at Aintree. We'll be back for the rest of the race after this short ad break. See you in a minute. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome back. Hope you're not unseated. Good. Then let's hear what else Richard Pittman cherishes from his very full life. So tell me about flipping. Well, flipping is a form of wasting, uh, of losing weight. Mm -hmm. And that is that you can't go without having food. So you have a meal as light as you can, and then you put your finger down your throat and you get rid of it. So mentally, you've had a meal, but it's not in your body. And the same thing, um, you could take a physic that would empty your bowels and Lasix that would empty your liquid from your body. And the first morning I ever took one, I had one a Lasix pill for ages, wrapped up in silver foil in my riding out jacket pocket. And Fred, when the secretary came up to the gallops and said to me, oh, I've just taken a ride for you at Nottingham. Someone's got hurt uh, schooling this morning. And uh, the trainer says it will win, but it's only got 10 stones. Can you do it? I said, I will do it. Yes. So I took the pill and we had 26 horses in the string. I'm up the front with the trainer. You see, coming home, we've just gallops and we're talking about prospects, etc. And I've taken this pill. Well, within four, three minutes, I want a wee. <laughs> so I said, oh, excuse me. And, and, and I, I jumped off, you see, and we're miles from home. I had a wee. Jumped back on, you know, very athletic. Horse was 16 to jump straight on in like a circus rider. And on we went. Two minutes later, oh, I want another one. <laughs> and each time I'm further and further back in the string, you see, until I'm right at the back. And after about three or four wees, I couldn't jump on the horse. It had affected me that much. It had weakened me that much. Yeah. And then got straight in the car and put my sweatsuit on. And I'm going to drive up with the heater on. That Not in two and a half hours in those days. Heater on, carry on sweating all the way. But I also had more fluid to get rid of. <laughs> you know, I lost 10 and a half pounds from having that pill to getting to Nottingham Racecourse in body fluid from a fit body. It takes all the potassium, all the salt out of your extremities, shoulder, elbow, knee, hips. Yeah. And uh, you get cramp. But the opposite of that is the adrenaline of being on a fancied horse and think you're going to win overcomes broken bones. You don't feel a broken bone because you're so pumped up. And actually the horse won. But <laughs> it was quite a, you know, exhausting thing to do. 
Oh, I'm not surprised you retired at 32. Yes, I'm sorry. I, I, I digressed, didn't I? No, not at all. So how you say, you know, I got to 16, failed my O-levels, and then I, my father said, well, go and get a job. And I thought I could ride, you said, right at the beginning of this chat. So how could you ride? How did you learn to ride? Well, I rode ponies. My sister forced me to ride ponies when I was at school. Mm. 5.30 in the morning, she'd point me out of bed and take me up just below Cleve Hill, which is behind Cheltenham Racecourse. And we borrowed a pony in Apsley called Honeybunch, a horrible little so-and-so. <laughs> and you'd go into this big field to catch him and he'd look at you slyly. And when you got within three feet, he'd go off, he'd yeah. go, or he'd put his ears back and kick. You know, horrible little thing. And she used to take me along the verges because very early in the morning, you see, she on a bicycle, me on Honey Bunch. And she'd say, as horsey women do, right, well, trot now. You see, she'd trot, 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 trot. Very nice. She'd, right, we'll have a canter now. <laughs> and I go, oh, I don't want a canter now. <laughs> and I jumped off the pony. So she's on a bike with a pony. And then she got wise. And the next day, she didn't say anything about cantering and just gave a smack around the bottom. And we're off together, her on the bike and me on the pony. Of course, once you knew cantering was speed and how lovely it was, you're then hooked, you see. I can imagine. I've very rarely ridden a horse, but it is a fantastic feeling. It's an opportunity that doesn't come along very often for me. <laughs> but you, on the other hand, have spent your entire life around horses. So you're still around them, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We buy horses, my wife and I, for three American friends here on the flat and jumping. And in Ireland, we've got Oh, I don't know, about 15 here, and we've had some very big winners, so things are going well. So, yes, horse-orientated. But why I retired at 32 to go back, Mike, is that I'd been offered the job with the BBC to be a paddock commentator. Right. The job was offered to me, and I turned it down because I had five of the best horses, steeplechasers and hurdlers, in the country. Now, I wasn't going to give those away for anything, any chance of a future didn't matter. You know, I got those mm. five, so I turned it down. Well, two years later, John Frankham had come up from being a boy and had shared the job with me for the first time, and we both had a huge amount of winners. And he's 10 years younger. He's patently better. I've got a job to go to. Wouldn't I be silly to turn it down now? But I still went to the trainer. And the, the hierarchy thing in a stable yard is that me, a stable jockey, the trainer and I would go up onto the top of the manure heap and we'd fork it into a nice square. You know, they were massive. So we're standing up to our ankles or more in horse manure, you see. <laughs> and I said to him, I'd been offered this job again with the BBC. What did he think? He said, well, Richard, as long as you want to do the job here riding, you will get half of the rides. John will, as he's the future and the younger, he will get any of the good hurdlers that are going steeplechasing because he'll be riding them in the future. Mm. And I said to him, yeah, I, I fully understand that and thank you for the confidence. But I have one question. Would you ever run Pendle in the Grand National? And he didn't even have to think about it. He said, no. He's had four leg problems, tendons in his life. I would not subject him to the drops on the fences it would be too much to ask him. I said, that's all I want to know. In that case, thank you for 11 years. I really, you know, you're my hero, but I will take the other job. He said, well, I wish you luck. Great. So I took it. I had been offered a lot of jobs because I was chatty. When ITV were covering racing, 
and they wanted someone to talk, they always got me on and they, you know, asked one question, I'd fill up 10 minutes for them and that was fine. So I got lots of offers of jobs. I was offered the UK franchise for automatic horse walking machines, right. which are everywhere. Mm. But then they weren't. They were made in Scandinavia and I accepted the job. So the day after Fred Winter and I parted company as employer and employee, I went there, my brochures under my arm, you see, <laughs> he said, you've come back very quickly. And I said, yes, um, I've got something that you really could do with, you know, in the yard. I, I, I'm going to sell you an automatic horse walk. You put eight on at a time, all in separate pens, and go round and round, warm them up before they they got the gallops, and cool them down afterwards. Mm. Well, he fell about laughing. He said, <laughs> Richard, I've trained 3,000 winners without a wretched horse walker. <laughs> and I was so embarrassed. I said, can I borrow your phone? Went to the office, and I resigned on the day that I started. <laughs> No, they're everywhere. Everyone's got two, four, eight, ten of these. You would have made a fortune. Yeah, <laughs> but there's more to life than money. There certainly is. I find it interesting that, that thing you're saying about Pendle having had a few accidents and things. It must be a terrible thing when you're so involved with the horse world and you must grow incredibly fond of the animals that you ride and it must be terrible to lose one it is also not to lose one but for them to break down as we say where the elasticity in the tendon stretches further than it can come back you mm. know and it requires a year off at least and there are various procedures to help them get better mm. but uh, when you lose one it, it is horrible, but he doesn't have to be a good horse. You know, you can be very fond of a moderate horse who mm. tries his heart out. And in fact, I, I came across this probably in the first month of my working as a stable lad. When the horse I looked after, one of the two I looked after, he was called Hardy Lad, chestnut horse, lovely horse. And he broke a leg. And uh, trainer couldn't take it, you know, and he disappeared. And he said, Richard, you'll have to be here with the vet. And I had to hold him in front of the bridle and he's looking at me and he's looking directly at me. And he was looking to say, can't you do anything for me? Oh, Lord. They put them down with a humane killer. It's not a gun. It's a bolt that mm. goes in on the forehead and it, and they go down very quickly. It's, it's horrible, horrible. Yeah. And the thing about this, Mike, is it was for a very small trainer and he rolled over and his shoes the front toe caps were all worn out on the shoes. And I thought, poor old thing, didn't even die with a good pair of shoes. He's very imprinted on my brain. Mm. But I'm afraid. I mean, my wife doesn't like watching jumping at all because of the injuries. We do everything we can to make it safe. I'm watching between fences. Yes, she I'm watches not... in between the fences. Sorry, Right, yeah. yes. I don't blame you. No, my wife's the same. But, you know, the attrition rate has got much better. The Grand National used to be the thing, mm. and they've altered the fences, taken the drop away from Breaches Brook. They've done everything to make it, and we've probably only had one fatality in the last 10 years probably now. Yeah, yeah. But it, it will happen. I mean, a derby winner, Milk House, broke his leg going up the most level all-weather gallop at a half-speed canter and broke a leg. Mm -hmm. So... It can happen. There can be a fragility in the bone or, or something. But they managed to save him. They put a plaster on his leg, and he was tied up in his stable day and night, so he couldn't get down. Because mm. he, if he got up again, the effort of half a ton of horse trying to get up would cause more damage. Yeah. And they saved him, and he had a very successful life at stud. 
And people would say, well, why can't you do that to every horse? Well, he was owned by Paul Mellon, a great philanthropist from America who had the resources to ensure this. Mm. But not everyone is in that position, but also some breaks are worse than others. And what you can't do, like you and I, we break a leg, we lie in bed for a month or something with our leg in traction and, yep. and plaster and bingo. But you can't immobilize a horse. You can't put slings under him and keep him off the ground to keep that weight off the leg because he then gets pneumonia. Right. They need to walk around. Otherwise, they flood their lungs. Mm. And um, they are now just trialing a purpose-made boot that will go from the hoof right to above the knee with metal structures inside casing so that they don't get hurt that will enable them to have that on them and be tied up for a certain while while the initial healing takes place. So, you know... <laughs> We're not callous. We all love the horses. No, no, of course. No, fingers crossed for that. Yes. Because it would be a marvellous thing. As I say, you can't be involved in this thing without adoring the creatures that you ride every day. Yeah, yeah. People fall in love with motor cars, but these are creatures. These are living beings. So the fondness for them must be extraordinary. We love them dearly. And all my time riding, 15 years, and then... 37 years I did with the BBC as interviewer. And, you know, I, I, I saw a lot of things happen. The, the Grand National that, that was void because there were two false starts and mm. some of the jockeys carried on. Uh, also, one when there was an IRA bomb threat and the whole place was evacuated. Oh, yeah. And we came back on the Monday and Princess Anne, and I think probably John Major was Prime Minister, they turned up specifically on the Monday to show them we cannot be beaten, you see. Yes. And also my good friend, Bob Champion, who rode in my days, had cancer in 79. The horse had broken down, bad leg, wasn't going to run again. And Champion, it nearly killed him getting better, but he got better. And two years later, he won the Grand National. It was such a magical story. You know, it's one that Dick Francis would write in his novel. (laughs) But we saw him going through his cancer situation And in those days, they said, look, I'm afraid it's terminal, but there is a drug that's being trialed. If you want to take the risk of joining the trial, and it was so bad on him that he decided he couldn't take it anymore. He got up and went walking around the wards. He went through the children's ward, and there were these little kids with cancer. And uh, one of them came up to him and said, oh, hello, 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 how are you doing? And Bob said, well, hey, I'm, not, I'm not doing very well, but he, he didn't want to down it for this kid who was so upbeat. Mm. And he came back to the ward and he said, if that young boy and the others can be so upbeat about it and want to live, I want to live. Uh. So he got back on it. And two years later, he wins the Grand Ash. It was the most amazing thing. Mm. And also, Mike, sorry, I keep butting myself in but um, <laughs> if his horse had coughed in the morning it was called alden Neaty. if it had coughed in the morning and not run the second horse would have been a fairy story it was ridden by 54 year old john thorne an amateur who owned the horse he had owned the stallion and owned the mare who was a farmer in warwickshire bred the horse <laughs> rode it and he was second so if bob hadn't turned up it's another fairy story oh how fantastic well you've brought this up so you can only blame yourself because uh, i wasn't going to mention coming second in the grand national <laughs> but you have but now i have <laughs> well you've led me to it and i have to say that if you're going to come second coming second to red rum that's got to be acceptable, isn't it? 
Yeah. I can see the look on your face. Well, I apologize. I apologize. No, no, no. We talk about it all the time. It's amazing that 47 years later, we're still talking about it. And in fact, that Crisp is such an extraordinarily famous horse. Yes. But if I can just go back a bit, I was actually second in the national twice. And no one remembers the first one. Oh, Lord, sorry. It was an outsider for one of the first female trainers. And it was called Steel Bridge, and it was second to a horse called Highland Wedding. But I was beaten 10 lengths, so no hard luck stories. Hmm. But when Milton Keynes was being built, all the builders were making stacks of money, you see. And this lady trainer, Barbara Lockhart-Smith, trained very close to Newport Pagnell. And uh, she was getting builders in on a Sunday morning, no racing in those days, I'd go up and school horses over the fences. They'd all get very excited. We'd go back and open the Bollinger. <laughs> and bingo, someone would buy a horse, you see. <laughs> so one day happened to be this guy called Jimmy Drabble, lovely, lovely guy. And he said, I want a horse. I want a horse. And, um, and Barbara looked up and said, oh, well, I'll find you one. You know, what, what do you want? Well, the Grand National is a great race. So she found him one in Ireland called Steelbridge, and he'd run two or three times previously and always got round slowly in his own time, you know, but jumped very well. Confidence was very high, you see, but why? He thought it would improve all of a sudden, you know. <laughs> anyway, the betting opened up, I know, three months before, and it was something like 500 to one, and he was so annoyed at that, <laughs> and thinking it was going to have a good chance, he started backing it, you see, 100 quid each way at 500 to one, and 200 <laughs> quid each way at 450, and he backed it right down <laughs> until it, I think it went off at probably 33 to 1, but that's a long way from 500. Mm. And the horse finishes second, you know. So it, it, it was such a marvellous time. In my view, it was the best ride I've ever given a horse because he was a no-hoper. I went round the inside where the brave men go because the fences are hot, the drops are more, the corners are sharper, mm. there's more danger of the other horses coming in on you, you know. But I went round there on this, what was really a no hope to most people except the owner, and I went round scraping the paint off the rails on my boots. I was so tight. And he jumped for fun. He loved it, you know, and finished second. And I think that was one of my greatest rides but the one you're referring to, Chris Bostrin, he was an Australian champion, and they were lumping so much weight on him in Australia. The owner who had bred him, Sir Chester Manifold in Victoria, said, this is not fair on this horse. Keep lumping more and more weight. It'll break his heart. So he sent him to us. And he won the champion two-mile chase at Cheltenham by 20 lengths. And remember, we're in the national then, not then, but two years later, four and a half miles you know, for a two-miler to be in a four-and-a-half-mile race, it was a big ask. Plus, he was so good, he had 12 stone, and the eventual winner, Red Rum, had 10 stone five. So uh. nearly two stone difference. And we discussed the race, and he was so exuberant in his jumps. When he saw a jump, he would quicken of his own volition. You know, he would spot the stride, and he would quicken, and he was brilliant. He would jump it low and fast. He'd be galloping before he hit the ground. And we went well clear, not immediately, but I jumped out first and he slowly got in front further and further. And by the time we jumped the water jump with a circuit to go, we jumped 16 fences. We were 30 lengths clear. Wow. And my, I cannot explain. Well, I can. Normally, the noise in a Grand National with 40 runners, 40 jockeys, the, the, the public address blaring all the way around. You know, it's very noisy. Here, absolute quiet. <laughs> I was on my own totally i couldn't hear them behind me 
And so I, I've gone on the second circuit, and there are holes in the fences where horses have ploughed through and fallen. And then I saw one jockey standing by the rails watching the race, holding the bridle. No horse. He was just <laughs> holding the bridle. The horse had gone. <laughs> and they're all shouting encouragement. And I got to Beecher's Brook, which is this big drop. And the public address was being done by a, a great Irishman no longer was called Michael O'Hare. And I was listening to the commentary, you see, rather than looking around, listening to the commentary. And I heard going to Beecher's Brook O'Hare saying, and Richard Pittman is 25 lengths clear. He's way ahead of the pack. Red Rum is coming out, but Fetch is having to kick him. I thought, that'll do me, but yeah. I must conserve stamina because we don't know if he'll get to the end, you see. So I went another jump, and there was one of the jockeys who'd lined up who'd fallen, David Nicholson. He was known as the Duke because he was quite aristocratic, even though he wasn't. He was one of us. And he was sitting there like an Indian in those John Wayne films on the chief on top of the mountain while he sent his braves down to fight. And there was Nicholson with his arms folded, you see, the horse picking grass. And he said, actually, Richard, you're 33 and a half lengths clear. Kick on and you'll win. And I thought, no, that's exactly what I'm not going to do because of stamina. So every time we jumped, I took hold of Crisp's head and tried to conserve it. We jumped across the corner at the canal turn, saving at least three lengths. In the pack, you're often forced straight onto the canal almost, you know. Mm. So we're doing everything we can to conserve energy. And still, going to the second last, I could not hear another horse. But the ground was firm, so therefore you hear drum, 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 drum of the hoofbeats, you see. And I just going to the second last, I heard the first hoofbeat. And then I heard the horse, I didn't know what it was at the time, exhaling, and his nostrils flapped. It's called a high blower. So every time he exhaled, which is every stride, you'd hear, <laughs> so drum, drum, <laughs> getting louder and louder. And I heard the tannoy. It was red rum coming, but I'm, I'm still way in front, you see. And he jumped the last and everything fell apart. You know, his stamina fell out like a leaky bucket. Uh, and like, he was a horse with loppy ears. That means they're not pricked up high. They were half cast. And even his ears went. Uh, now, if you haven't got the strength to keep your ears up, you've gone to the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> and I made a stupid error. I picked the stick up. I thought I've got to wake him up. I whacked him around the backside. He was a big, heavy horse. He was probably 620 kilos, heavy horse. And by taking my hand off to give him a smack, he's fallen away. I should have kept hold of him and just kept him balanced mm. to get round to the elbow. The run in is 494 yards. And we were in front for 492 of them. Oh. And I could hear Red Rum coming, but Fletcher, who rode him, very clever. Instead of coming up close to me, which would have galvanized my horse, even though he's dead on his feet, he challenged very wide. I could hear him getting louder and louder. And then I saw his head two strides from the winning post. So elation to desolation, uh, but not for long. No. Because I'd had a great ride. Yeah. And second in the Grand National. It's not bad. In a way, it's like asking Seb Coe to race Mo Farah. 10,000 metres. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> he'd be way ahead of Mo Farah. And then yeah, yeah. he'd slowly pull him back. Yeah. But also, the horse was such a gallant horse. All these top jockeys say second is no good. But it was a tremendous feat because he was giving almost two stones, the horse who beat him, who the next year carried 12 stone and won it again. Yeah. In fact, he won three out of five, second in the other two. So it was a tremendous feat. Mm. And we met in a match race at Doncaster the following year 
on level weights and we whipped him hollow, but my horse got a leg injury in doing it. So it's a funny old game, but that race is still being talked about on Twitter and Facebook and people want to say what an idiot I was and I agree with them and, you know, we, we have fun over it. <laughs> what an extraordinary thing to accuse you of after having done all the things you've done. It's an extraordinary career. It really is. Yeah, but my punters and armchair watchers all could have ridden the race better and would not have gone on in front. But as Fred Winter and I discussed, he was such an exuberant jumper if we'd held him up to conserve his stamina, he would have jumped on the back of another horse. And if you don't get round, you can't win anyway. No. You've got a clear jump as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, Richard, how fantastic. There are so many things in your life that you would hang on to and preserve in a time capsule that I'm not really going to pin you down on any of them. I think it's clear that the love you have for the whole thing, really. It's exciting, though, Mike, to be paid after you finish as a sportsman to stay in that sport for 37 years. You mm. know, to be paid for something you love. Mm. Great. And it's the thing that really most people remember you for. Yes, isn't it sad? Yes. <laughs> but funny enough, when I rode for four years without a winner and these small stables, you know, probably only had six, seven horses, I pulled up at a petrol station on the way to Leicester and I'm filling up with juice, you see, and I went in to pay for it. And the first, ah, I recognize you. And I thought, oh, that's a first. He said, <laughs> you're the man who can't ride a winner. <laughs> <laughs> that's going on the gravestone. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Richard, fantastic. I'm going to let you go. How lovely to talk to you. Bless you for doing this. Well, I'm grateful to you because I love talking about racing because I'm in it and I love it. But, Mike, the only thing I do wish that I had your ability and your voice. <laughs> what about the looks? Come on. Yeah, 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 yeah. You've got more hair than I have. Yes. Well, you're younger than me. Yes, yes. Oh, You've got right. a lovely laugh. Yeah. <laughs> Richard, how lovely to meet you and how lovely to listen to your fantastic stories. Thank you so much. My pleasure. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Richard Pittman. I hope you enjoyed listening and you can work out the things that Richard will put in his time capsule. I think it's fairly obvious. And he was such a great guest, it seemed rude to interrupt him and insist on him actually defining what they were. Best sometimes just to let people talk and, as is the point of a podcast, listen. We have a lot of other episodes, some where people will follow the format and a few where they don't, but all worth listening to, I hope. And you can listen to any of them at any time by subscribing on all podcast providers. I don't mean you have to subscribe on all of them, just that you can subscribe on any of them. Although if you did subscribe on all of them, that would really boost our figures. Still, one will do, and then we will send you all new episodes as they become available. If you want to see what we're up to and what's coming up, you can follow me or My Time Capsule on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Feel free to contact us anytime through any of those. You can download or stream the theme music by Pass the Peas Music on Spotify anytime. And this cast-off production was produced by John Fenton Stevens. There you go. Time for me to saddle up and canter off into the sunset. I fancy the idea of horse riding, but I'm not so sure about betting on them. We've never been that successful at it in my family. My granddad lost his house betting on a horse. He put everything he had on it at 25 to 1. Unfortunately, with all that weight to carry, it didn't finish till half past four. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.